We have Derek Mooney, public affairs consultant and former government advisor. Councillor Jim O'Leary, Fine Gael, representing the Dundrum area and Dundrum West Down County Council. Councillor Emma Murphy, Fianna Fáil, who sits on South Dublin County Council and a communications director for Barry Andrews, MEP. And Shane O'Brien, uh, Sinn Féin, former councillor in Dundrum West Down County Council and now a policy officer for the party. Over the past number of weeks, councillors in both Dundrum West Down County Council and South, South Dublin County Council have been working on their respective county plans. To give us an overview of Dundrum West Down, we begin with Jim. So Jim, what can you tell us? You uh, you've, you didn't finish till midnight last night after a number of weeks. Yeah, so we've actually just uh, completed probably the most onerous part of the county development plan. We've had uh, two weeks of meetings from five o'clock in the afternoon to 11, 12 at night. And uh, the stage we've reached is uh, we have, if you like, finalised the draft plan. So uh, a draft plan would have been put out to the public there six, eight months ago, the public would have been able to comment on it. We would have received in over a thousand submissions. The management would have reviewed each one of those submissions. They would have synopsized it for us. And then we would have reviewed each one of them. Um, and then based on that, uh, and based on managers' recommendations, councillors would have been passing motions. So we passed about, uh, off the top of my head, I'm gonna say 250 motions over the last number of days. Um, and uh, what, so we finalized that now, that's now, I suppose I'm going to use the term, it's still a draft plan. It goes out to public consultation for another couple of months. People will be able to see what they think about it. Um, it'll come back December or after Christmas. We'll finalize it between Christmas and March, and then it goes live in March. Can you give so, us some details on what's in it? What's in it? Well, I suppose purely from a Finnegan perspective, we, had, we, we were emphasizing three things. We were emphasizing... Uh, jobs, housing, and then trying to protect open space and the existing amenities of residents. Right. So uh, we had a number of key motions in terms of, for us, uh, in, this, in the Dunleary area, uh, Dunleary County Council, Sandyford Industrial State is, is, is the rates engine, if you like. And what we've witnessed there is a kind of a, there's an imbalance between the amount of commercial development and residential development that's going on that's actually putting at risk future commercial development. So uh, we were looking to um, try and rebalance that. Uh, probably the biggest, the biggest uh, initiative that we undertook, it was sponsored by myself and my colleague, Councillor Saul. We've rezoned 15 hectares of state-owned land to residential with the intention that the LDA will consider it as part of their property portfolio. The, the Land Development Agency, that, that's in Shangana, is that correct? No, no. This oh, excuse me. This is uh, the Central Bank Mint. mint oh, um, in Dundrum. In Dundrum, so okay. uh, 15, 15 hectares of land. Uh, we would hope then that be, um, it'll be used by the LDA for the provision of social and affordable housing with an emphasis on affordable rental and uh, uh, affordable purchases. Um, we've also rezoned about two and a half hectares of that to put in a, again, the intention would be that on this side of the county, we don't have a community centre or sports centre uh, of the same size as Lachlanstown and you know it's a deficiency in this part of the county so that gives us the opportunity to put something like that in place and and, and the provision of, of, of additional sports fields so that was that's probably the biggest initiative but as a county development plan it swings and roundabouts we spent I mean amongst the most controversial debates were around roundabouts in Sally Noggin and Cologne 
<laughs> so, but just to go back to just briefly to go back to the uh, to the proposed development in in Dundrum, how realistic is that to go ahead? Do you think? Well, the very first step is um, the LDA are undertaking a full review of uh, properties across the state. Uh, the, what's key is that uh, these would have to be rezoned residential. That have to be, um, I suppose, that they have to comply with uh, 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 proper planning. So this is a site that's within the built-up area. Mm. It's service land. It's close to amenities. It's close to employment. It's close to services. So you have to meet all those criteria. But the, the whole idea is that you know this is the first step in putting pressure on the minister to make sure that that forms part of the portfolio. And again, it offers us the opportunity to. Uh, to, to, to address affordability in this county because what of all the counties in the country um, a, 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 as an example a three bedroom 70 detached house in Donegal down is twice the national average mm. and for an ordinary for a couple to afford uh, one of those houses in this county they need to have a joint income of 120,000 and that's just the function of the demand for people trying to live in this county but it puts at risk our ability to to uh, provide uh, homes for uh, to, uh, multitudes of people, mm. you know, people working in the guards, nurses, teachers, people working in the private sector, in the back offices of the large firms that are going into to, to the into the Centre for Business Park. Mm. So we have a we have an obligation to try and make sure that we can house. Uh, all cohorts, just, just not, as, not just, just the wealthy. Just as a sidebar, um, Jim, is there some um, proposal there to get rid of the uh, roundabouts in the Glenageary, Salonogan area? Yeah, yeah. So that, again, I mean, that's where politics gets a bit silly. You know, you have local politicians whipping up concerns that aren't a concern. You know, uh, trying to trying to worry people into the idea that the roundabouts are going to be taken away when there are no such plans. And then they look for SLOs. SLOs now are which SLOs? Uh, specific local objectives. Yeah. I, you, you, you put in a, a, an SLO onto the roundabout saying we need to retain this roundabout because it's great for traffic. Uh, these roundabouts were so important to some of the locals, I was surprised that they weren't trying to put them into the, the record of protected structures, you know. But these are things that we should really be leaving to, to, to experts like traffic engineers. And we've seen on this side of the county when we've re, re, removed roundabouts, it's done with a, a significant amount of consultation. It actually is there to improve traffic flow. It's acknowledged roundabouts work up to a, a certain uh, threshold, and then after that you have to move. But as a, as a dynamic, you know, you, you have a situation here where we're, we're looking to rezone 15 hectares. It, it, it goes through without much controversy. But trying to retain a roundabout that wasn't even being challenged creates all the heat. Okay, all right. Uh, so that's really that's that's to sum up the uh, and and so uh, where does it go? Just from from the listener's point of view, where does it go? So, from so it'll, it'll go back out into public consultation. When is that? When will that be? Uh, um, I'm going to say it'll have to go out in the next three weeks. I'm okay. assuming I'm, I'm picking that figure from the top of my head, but that type of a time frame, and then uh, people will get to comment on it again. And uh, uh, councillors will have to make a final decision within that window, and then it's locked down. And that's our development plan so from 2022 to 2028. But to sum up, then it's the community developments and the um, area up and around Dundrum there with the old uh, mint is are probably the, the highlighted features of it. Would that that, be that's a- probably the biggest initiative. But but other things we were very conscious of trying to protect. So we would have downzoned some land. We would put extra protections around open space. We would look to. Uh, put in uh, safeguards when it came to uh, separation distances between existing 
existing homes and, and new developments. Right. And um, for my own part, then I was very key that we, you know, secure a site for a, a, a community centre, a yeah. cultural community civic centre in Dundrum, yeah. with a civic square or a public plaza. So this is this is to do with the development that Hammerson are talking about. I take it. Well, it's, it's, right. it's, it's, it's no. on the same site. I'll put it to okay. that way. Yeah. There will be a tension between what they're. And, and they get to put their planning permission in before this plan is finalised, which is a pity before the LIP is finalised. Right. And, uh, you know, that's unfortunate. Yeah. And, and maybe it's beyond unfortunate, but we'll see. Okay. We'll see what's the nature of the planning application. Emma, South Dublin County Council, you, you've, you've, uh, you've concluded your talks as well, I believe. Yeah, yeah, we're 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 kind of gone just a little bit of a um, little bit of a stage further, I suppose. Uh, we concluded. Um, I think we had eleven hundred motions. Of it, so, Jim, you got away. You got away lightly. Um, we were burning the candle for a few nights. Um, believe me. Um, so, no, it. Um, we we're actually out at the kind of second public consultation now. Um, so it'll come back to us in the in the early new year uh, for a final uh, for final consultation with councillors. But um, I suppose the contentious components from from our perspective were that we rezoned very little, like very 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 little. Um, um, but there was a huge amount of submissions from private developers, etc., to um, you know request for rezoning. Um, and there was there was little to none. Um, there was a huge proposal in Kingswood um, that was that was it turned out, and there was a, a good few north of the um, north of uh, of the um, the Nace Road, as we call it, um, dividing the county kind of in two in that sense. But I suppose from from my perspective, um, I did I had a few good small personal wins. I think, um, and I. Um, yeah, a few small per- um, good personal wins um, managed to secure the, you know, um, an agreement for the provision of a swimming pool um, somewhere in the Furhouse, Knockline, Rathfarnham area. It's kind of the only, those two local electoral areas are the two local electoral areas in the county that don't have a swimming pool. Mm. Um, my own area that I grew up in in Ballyboden would be very underserviced in terms of, um, in terms of amenities and I managed to secure, um, again, the provision of a, a sports pavilion uh, within the Ballyboden area to service the, the clubs that are existing there very much community kind of colloquial kind of one in that sense um, and a couple of others into, you know in relation to um, uh, you know in the, there was one in particular that I backed um, that I that I, the motion was mine and, and got you know unanimous unanimous support was you know for um, the position kind of um, a recreation and glamping site um, from a private entity up in uh, the base of the Dublin Mountains there on the Ballycullen end so you know it's it's, it's really interesting Brian I think um we finished our county development plan on a Thursday night. We elected the mayor the following morning. Um, and that's kind of, um, it was really interesting. Um, the day after that was passed, there was four applications for SHDs literally within the three. The strategic housing, strategic housing yes, yeah, yeah. Um, within <laughs> within three uh, within two kilometres of each yeah. other, three of them have been passed. Uh, one of them is still um, still kind of um, is still going through the process with on board Planola. Um, but you know, when I was kind of looking, at a lot of the arguments against rezoning were, you know, this, um, you know. You know, public, you know, private, private land and public land and versus and housing and then so on and so forth. 
And it just meant that the kind of SHD model just made a mockery of anything, any kind of votes down that were made by, by councillors. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, again, that, that is ending in February like, anyway, isn't it, Emma? Yeah, it's, it's ending in February, uh, but it's really interesting to see the amount. It's really interesting to see the amount have kind of gone in as well. But I suppose we really kind of had a kind of a community focus, I suppose, with regard to the county development plan, looking at kind of areas that need to be more serviced, that are kind of underserviced. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, you know, it was a tough process. It is a tough process um, and it's getting tougher. Um, so I'm looking forward to another few long nights uh, now at the at the turn of the year um, to you know to get them to get it through and get it over the line. Okay. Um, but uh, you know we're going into budget season as well, so it's always a, an interesting time between um, October and and February in county development plan years. So um, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting one. Very good, Shane. Bring you in. Um, what uh, what are your thoughts and what are you hearing from the former council used to sit on uh, in terms of the county plan? Yeah, no, listen, I, I don't envy Jim in terms of the errors that you have to put in. That's that's one thing I don't miss. But the, the actual process itself, I, I found, you know, as a first time councillor, was actually quite exciting. And um, in terms of knowledge building right across the county, you know, you really do learn a lot about the ins and outs of, you know, right down to the minutiae of planning. Uh, right, you know, planning. Yeah, no, it is. It's an excellent process. And I was actually chair of the strategic policy committee for planning. Uh, yes, in and around at the time yeah, of yeah. the last county development plan. So it was just it was something I had a kind of personal interest in. And, you know, I might have had about 60, 70 motions, personal motions in uh, at the last time. I, I, I've been watching a little bit of Jim and other councillors in action uh, over the last, you know, uh, rounds of, of the process. And it's obviously quite an elongated process. And I think there's been some interesting debates. There's ones which sites that would have been key sites in in I suppose from a housing development perspective and um, that I would have an interest in the mint uh, the former oh, yeah. mint site obviously mm-hmm. being uh, a major one I know previously uh, with submissions from the Department of Housing in and around at the last county development plan which were citing security risks of why it couldn't be developed in a manner that myself and others wish to see it developed in mm-hmm. um, I know and Jim, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but there were a number of motions whether on the site in the Mint about uh, developing it for social and affordable purposes, purposes. And I think yourself were looking to develop it for mainly affordable purposes. So I do think, you know, this not any public land that should be developed for social and affordable purchase well, or I think, rent. I think Dundee um, now is one of the most like expensive the counties in, 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 from the point of view of housing. Oh, absolutely. And that's why it's so important that the, 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 the last vestiges of public land and, and key sites such as the Mint are developed, you know, in, in accordance with, I suppose, the Shangana Urban Village kind of model in mind. Uh, obviously a model that, you know, myself and, and other former councillors developed yeah. and brought senior management and councillors on board. And it's just important that we're not you know, putting private for-profit housing on sites such as this. Um, I think, you know, Jim said it there, the average house prices is forcing many first-time buyers, uh, such as myself and many others in my generation and younger, out of the county. Uh, rents are continuing to skyrocket. Obviously, the, the budget that's just gone by is on very little in terms of yeah, alleviating the into that renters. Yeah. So, but, but that's what that's what I think is really important. And then sure. obviously Mount Allen. I think that was a key site uh, right throughout the last council and, and continues to be. The, the other thing, and I, I actually want to just back Jim on this in a sense, this is how how the county's development plan sometimes be misused. I, 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 
issue of roundabouts. Yeah. Seeing the airing its head again around Glenagiri. I want to bring Derek in because I just want to bring Clinton before we finish with this. Derek, you welcome the end of the uh, strategic housing developments, do you? Or, or what's your Absolutely. thoughts on that? Absolutely. And unfortunately, it's sad to see something trying to get in under the wire, as, as Emma's outlined there, that this, this last dash. However, the problem is when you do set an end date for these things, that's exactly what happens is anyone who has plans in the pipeline start yeah. charging ahead with them. Yeah. I think just as I make a broad point, which is, first of all, this is the meat and potatoes of local government. This is what local politics is about. This is what council. It is hard work. It's tedious work. And it's, it's own glorious work at a time. But the but but what comes out of it is is what makes what decides our our urban architecture. What's what decides what's around us. It decides the areas we live in. What they what they're going to look like for the next 10, 15 years. And this, particularly around South County Dublin and and Dundee right down. I mean South County Dublin yes. in the old geographic sense. Of it, mm-hmm. Is there's a lot of there is scope there for huge development. And I, when I say huge development, exciting development, rather than just more concrete pillars, etc. And um, that that in, in terms of the demand for people to live there, particularly young people to live there is huge. And if the emphasis isn't on housing, housing, housing every single time, then then, then this, they, 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 these things are going nowhere. Mm. And therefore the development that the Mint is, 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 is to be welcomed. And it is, it has to be social and affordable because I think affordable is becoming even a bigger problem. Um, and that, that's what that's where the, the emphasis needs to be placed right across it. But we, I mean, Dublin risks dying on its feet if people cannot continue to live in Dublin. Sure. And there's there are so many issues around Dublin. Um, I would suggest, I mean, having lived in Dublin City Council area for most of my, my, most of my life and having run for the thing a couple of times, you come out to Dundee right down, which you thought was just kind of, wow, well, these cute little pretendy councils out of the fringes. And you realise, hang a second, the structures are better out here. <laughs> the whole thing, the infrastructure is, is, is far, far better. Than Dublin, City Dublin City Council. Council. Oh. And if you look at how the lockdown was handled, if you look at how the pandemic was handled, Dunleary Ratdown was an example of how you you actually think creatively and Dublin was again where you sit and you react, you wait and you wait ages and ages and ages until you react and then you find that the whole city centre, once you take the workers out of the city centre very few people are living in a city centre okay. and the city centre becomes a ghost town okay. and then it develops from the ghost town to becoming almost feral in some parts. Okay. So I mean I think there's a huge fear what's come out of the last while okay. and I think Dublin City Council has a very, very long way to catch up. And that was Derek Mooney, Public Affairs Consultant, former Government Advisor, Councillor Jim O'Leary of Sine Gael, Councillor Emma Murphy of Fianna Fáil and Shane O'Brien, Sinn Féin, former Councillor in O'Leary, Ratdown County Council and now Policy Officer for the party. Coming up next, Jim O'Leary on the Hammerson proposal for Dundrum Village. 93.9 Dublin South FM. Welcome back to Property Matters in Dublin South FM with Carol Tallon and myself, Brian Fox. You can contact us on social media at iProperty Radio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Hammerson, the owners of the Dundrum Town Centre, has announced that it plans to build apartments in Dundrum. It is anticipated that the construction proposal will be applied for under the strategic housing development for planning permission, which expires in February. To discuss this latest housing development for Dundrum, on the line is Councillor Jim O'Leary, Fine Gael, and represents the uh, Dundrum area. So, Jim, I'll just ask you for your, for your uh, reaction to, um, to this news that came in last week, uh, before the weekend. Well, I suppose uh, my immediate reaction is when you see a number of 890 apartments or thereabouts, you're, you know, that's a huge number. So uh, there's an element of shock, if you like. But at the same time, I think we need to recognise the Achilles heel of this economy and the society at the moment is we do have a housing problem. So in that sense, the idea that finally something has been done on this side is positive. Mm. Now, whether we don't know anything about the design, we don't know anything about the heights involved or the densities or anything like that. 
So there's a lot of unknowns. And uh, so my immediate reaction is 900 just seems a very high number. But at the same time, think about it. If you are a young family or if you are a young couple, is there a nicer place to live maybe than Dundrum? It's an ideal site. Mm. So it, it is about getting the balance right, I think, though. So do you have any idea then in, in terms of uh, sort of land accumulation? Or, I mean, are there, are there, will there be houses? Will, will, will the um, Main Street in Dundrum be affected by any demolition, for instance? Well, you see, this is what we don't know. And, and I mean, some of the concerns I would have is that we're going through our county development plan. We haven't finalised that yet. And what we're trying to do is protect like the streetscape and the, the character of the main street so that whatever has been built that the that the old Victorian uh, streetscape is protected and incorporated into it what we're trying to do is to make sure that we have a proper site for a, 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 a community and cultural centre and that we have a, a, a civic square a civic plaza for people so all of these things are being being finalised at the moment and so, so this planning permission or this planning application is kind of getting in ahead of us being able to finalise that. Um, the other con- concern I would have is that, you know, and again, we don't know because we don't have the details of it, is the whole site just going to be given over to residential? Which, if it is, would be retrograde. Mm. Because what we're hoping there is that we would have hoped that there would be still be a certain amount of retail, but that there would be other... Community you know, type there of... Be, there could be a hotel, there could be entertainment, there could be leisure opportunities, mm. you know, that there could be offices... I mean, the whole idea here is that if people can live close to where they're working, that's all the better that you get a, a compact, uh, you know, 15-minute city. So there's, there's an awful lot we don't know. All we know is that they're, they're talking with the board, then they'll be talking with Dunleary right down for close to 900 apartments and a crash. That's all we know. But if that's all it amounts to, you know, So, Jim, forgive my naivety here, but I mean, just understand this a little bit better. The, the, the application is going under the strategic housing development, correct? Yes. Right. Yes. But surely there should be firm plans there for, for that to go ahead under, under the development plan. And that goes from Board Planola, correct? At the moment, you see what all their, at the moment, this is just a consultation process. Oh. So what will happen is they're having discussions with Board Planola. Then there will be a tripartite process of them discussing plans with Board Planola and Dunleary right down. And based on the feedback they get from the two planning authorities, they will then lodge a very detailed planning application, which will actually address the issues that have been raised explicitly by Mbor Planola. They will have to explain how um, the issues that Mbor Planola raised, they have addressed in their submission. So really, the, the, the difficulty is mm, right. we don't know what that is yet. The only people who know are Mbor Planola. Mm. Uh, so th- th- we're in the very early stages then, of, obviously, yeah. at this point. But they will, uh, yeah, and, 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 and as I understand it, based on what's on the Onboard Planola website, in early December, Onboard Planola will either give the green light and tell them, yes, you've done enough work here, we understand this enough, make a submission, and they will make that submission under the SHD process. And the idea is that um, uh, the larger developers are having to get these submissions in before the end date of February. Yeah. I see there's a, there are other there are other developments trying to get through as well. I exactly, can see. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So uh I, I suppose there's 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 new planning legislation coming through and they have a certain you know, with change comes a level of uncertainty. So from a developer's perspective, they know the way the SHD process works. Mm. It's been there for three or four years. 
let's see what we can get done for that. And have you had any reaction from the executive within Dunleer as Down County Council at this point in time as to how they're thinking in, about it? In fairness, at this moment in time, we're caught up in the county development plan, right. and we've had uh, we've had uh, three late night meetings last week. We have scheduled for four this week, so there hasn't been an opportunity really to discuss this uh, with them. I suppose. Uh, I haven't talked to them about it. Uh, what I'm more concerned about is making sure that, and we're, we're getting to this pl- part of the plan now, is that as we plan for Dundrum, that we incorporate the things that I think will make Dundrum uh, a, an, excellent, an excellent place to live in or around. And that's about being able to provide uh, a site for a new community and cultural and civic centre, being able to provide a site for a new civic square and plaza, and making sure that any development that happens on the uh, in the Dundrum area, um, you know, incorporates things beyond just residential, beyond just retail. Uh, and, but how realistic is that, uh, Jim? Well, this is the danger now, I suppose. I mean, because this is getting in before we finalise both our local area plan and our county development plan, they're they're getting in ahead of some of the new initiatives that we have in the county development plan. The only thing I would say is that whatever has been built, they do have to respect the existing streetscape. That's an existing uh, specific local objective. And that's that's important. And uh, so that, 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 that's a small thing. But again, as well, I would have hoped that there would, there would have been more space given over to, to leisure activities, a nightclub, you know, offices, um, creches, uh, remote working hubs, uh, Opportunities like that. So we'll see. We won't know until the actual plan lands and it's in the public domain what's been offered. Mm. And, and, you know, as I said, my initial reaction, 900 apartments seems really, really high. But at the same time, you know, Dundrum is an ideal location. The design could be excellent and there could still be enough uh, land left over. Yeah, uh, but but again, you, you, you've no idea yourself of whether there one one bed, two bed studios or what type of makeup the actual no, block would be? None, none. And, and that's the disadvantage we're at at this moment. We don't know whether they'll be uh, built to rent or they'll be under the normal planning uh, 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 approach. I would hope, and all I can say is hope, like most people in the area, that they're not built to rent. I would hope that uh, while there will be one and two bedroom apartments, that there are sufficient three bedroom apartments as well for families. Because what we've identified is that uh, as the population is growing, there is a greater need now for three-bedroom apartments for families. We need to start building proper family apartments in, 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 in this county. In the past, the idea was that the apartments would be used by couples, single people. But now the housing stock that we have, the three- and four-bedroom houses that we have, there isn't sufficient numbers there to meet the demand for uh, developing families. So, uh, you know, we're in the dark here. All we know for definite is that final application in all likelihood will go in in December and uh, that the discussions they're having with Embarker and all is for around uh, 900 apartments. We don't know the height, we don't know the density, we don't know how many blocks there'll be, we don't know the precise locations and we don't know whether there's enough land left over for other initiatives. Okay, so so that goes to Unblower Pernola by the end of December. What's the process after that? Well, what will happen after that then? So if it goes to Unblower Pernola in December, uh, off the top of my head now, it's it's there's set goals in terms of uh, our set timeframes, but uh, one of the processes is um, 
the plans will be explained to local councillors. Uh, we will get the opportunity to outline our concerns. Oh, shit. Uh, okay. And we'll do that in an area committee. But that, that's unique then, isn't it, Jim? I mean, I thought that Rob Plora was, was yeah, took the decision themselves. Well, yeah, ultimately, with all of these things, the, the board is the final arbiter. Arbitrary, it yeah. takes the positions. But the SHB has been a very useful process in allowing councillors greater insight okay. into, into the plan. So our planners will explain the application to us then we will make our views known on that application as we have done on many other SHD applications. In addition to that, the Nary's planners also assess the plan and also come to a conclusion as to whether they would grant permission or not grant permission for it. And if they wouldn't grant permission and the, the board is, is of a mind to grant permission, they will outline the type of changes they would recommend to the board. And this forms a document that's called the Chief Executive's Report, which the board inspector then has to have regard to. So while the decision is no longer with the council, the council does have a role in giving its opinion, both mm -hmm. the elected members and the planners. But mm -hmm. well, that all has to be in by February of next year, isn't that correct? Uh, the application has to be in by February next year, but I would imagine that, uh, so if the, if the application goes in, let's say the application goes in in December, mm -hmm. Um, let me just see if I can get some sense of, 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 of timelines. Uh, then the public will be given, I think it's six weeks to actually put in their their views, their views on it. Yeah. You have to make an online submission. And then in addition to that, uh, I think the, the, the board then has about another two months to make a decision okay. on it. No, I, the reason I'm bringing up February is because that's when the uh, scheme um, expires. Yeah. yeah, but I think anything... The, the idea is that anything that gets into the system before February will go through that we'll go through. until the end. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, so I, it looks like that the, it may well be they will they will get a they will get a confirmation from a board plan holder in early December as to whether the board thinks that their the planning application that they've discussed with the board is uh, um, deemed credible enough. To, so, such that you can apply under the SHD. So right. you actually have to have permission to apply under the SHD uh, approach. So they need permission from Umbarplan all first to actually apply under the SHD approach. Right. Uh, and that's what they're waiting on. Sure. So let's say they get permission in December. It may well be they'll wait until January with Christmas coming up before they actually launch their, their, their actual plans. Well, you brought a lot of clarity to this particular story about the apartment development in Durham anyway. So for now, Councillor Jim O'Leary Finnegale representing the Dundrum area. Thanks so much indeed. Thanks, Brian. 93.9 Dublin South FM And welcome back to Property Matters on Dublin South FM with myself, Carol Tallon. You can contact us on social media at iPropertyRadio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. We're now joined by Taylor Odegaard, CEO of Navigator CRE and his colleague, Kevin Stockman, um, Chief Operations Officer. Taylor and Kevin, you're very welcome to iPropertyRadio Radio today. Um, Navigator CRE, talk to us and tell us about that. Certainly. So we are a data analytics platform uh, specifically focused on data visualization and enablement uh, for commercial real estate owner operators and occupiers across the globe. Our platform is designed to aggregate all of the data and data sources and disparate data sources together into one pane of glass and ultimately drive efficiency, weaponizing your data, turning it into intellectual currency, and then we teach you how to spend it as an operator. Weaponizing data, that sounds dangerous. 
<laughs> and, it, and it should be. Uh, I think the whole uh, the focus that we have is giving people the ability to utilize that data in a whole new way. And uh, some of the incredible statistics we found is uh, roughly 78% of all data collected at the property level is never used for analytics or decision making. Uh, I, I think even people in the industry wouldn't be surprised to hear that figure. What I'd love to see is how that's changed, not necessarily as a result of COVID, but certainly we know that COVID has accelerated this trend that was already in play. So um, in terms of the company, how long has the company been in existence? So uh, we founded Navigator in uh, 2015. Um, I wrote the original code base in 2008 when I was in college studying uh, real estate finance and development in Los Angeles um, and used it in my commercial real estate career, which was about 14 years and spanned uh, many different uh, large brokerage firms from uh, Colliers International to Johns Lang LaSalle to CBRE, uh, from the research side all the way through to capital markets. And Navigator was a software tool that I built to try to create an acceleration in data visualization and analytics. Uh, and in 2015 to 2017 is where we decided to really turn this sandbox uh, that I had built into a real enterprise-grade platform, uh, raised our initial round of capital from uh, local high net worth individuals in the Pacific Northwest near Seattle, um, and from there started to bring Navigator to the enterprise market. Uh, and in 2018 and 2019, we started to really find product market fit uh, in the owner-operator asset management world, as well as the global occupier services world. Um, and in 20, 2019 to 2020, we really separated ourselves as an industry leader in data visualization and analytics for commercial real estate. It's interesting that you were introduced to this industry through your education back in 2008. That's not, that's not a long time ago, and um, that was also right at the kind of not not the pinnacle but we were we we knew we were facing into a crash although um the severity obviously wasn't um too clear uh learning this industry in 2008 the technology for other industries was well established in terms of training what level of training as in um and what i'm trying to get at is how much introduction to technology did you get through your real estate training uh, quite a bit. I think it was a, a mix. I, I grew up in the, uh, in the backyard of Microsoft, um, and many of my friends uh, started software companies and cloud storage companies uh, in high school and in college. And so I'd always been a technologist from that standpoint. And uh, what, what happened is my uh, real estate education uh, came together, and I really became kind of a hybrid of uh, bringing technology and real estate together and realizing that um, you know myself as well as the colleagues that I brought into Navigator all had a very unique persona of wanting to bring technology to an industry that was fairly provincial. Uh, and we had seen what had happened in healthcare tech and fintech and insure tech between the 2000s and in late 2000s. Um, and commercial real estate was definitely the laggard of having a core enterprise grade technology to serve the operators. Uh, and that's ultimately where uh, uh, I met Kevin uh, when he was running uh, Deloitte's global real, real estate um, practice and uh, ultimately brought him in to be a full Kool-Aid drinker of Navigator uh, as my COO. Very I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm smiling because I was one of those provincial people initially back in 2008. I was still in grad school and I was not a believer that tech was actually going to make real estate better. I thought this is this is a business driven um by more art than science, right? Creating experiences where we live, work, and play, and building financial models to support it. And it's clear now, right? 13 years later, that um, not only have I been proven wrong, but I'm a full Kool Aid drinker of the power of technology in real estate. 
you know, that's really interesting. I love I love hearing about that because actually there were still pockets of resistance. And I think it's really interesting. You said you doubted whether um, technology would make it better because most people doubt whether the industry will, would have embraced technology the way they did. Whereas for you, the doubt was, would it make it better? And by the way, you know, I actually still speak to people who believe that elements of the industry have, have been influenced, but not necessarily improved by technology. I'm not of that school of thought, but I'm always interested to hear when people are, because look, um, we say a lot that this is a people-driven business, and that's true, but the reality is the quality of the decisions we make are so much better when we rely on data. And I mean, you referred to previously believing real estate was a bit of an art rather than a science. Frankly, up until 15 years ago in Ireland, property valuations was an art uh, rather than a science. We didn't even have a register of property values. Um, and I can remember, you know, 15 years ago, speaking to particularly US buyers coming into Ireland. And they would, when they were looking on properties, they would ask for the comps. And Irish estate agents would say, what, what do you mean? <laughs> it didn't exist. It's just, it wasn't how we operate at any level. You know, yeah. so actually in a way, the industry has transformed massively in 15 years. But I think the last 18 months or 20 months have been the most interesting. So maybe talk us through how your clients have reacted or responded, um, and not necessarily just your clients, but actually your target clients as well over the past 18 months. Yeah, certainly. I think uh, one of the things we really saw is, you know, Navigator uh, as a platform is, is again, to design it's designed for data enlightenment. It's designed to bring all the data sources you have together and, and really turn those into actionable insights. And while uh, call it pre, pre-COVID, uh, a lot of companies were on a tear. They were acquiring properties globally, entire portfolios and funds. Um, and then ultimately when COVID hit, the, the decision-making uh, you know, changed and shifted from net acquisition of, of the portfolio. And now it was starting to understand the, the portfolio's current DNA. How is it made up? Who are my tenants? Where are they located? Are they operating? Do they have money? Are they heavy on retail? Are you heavy in office? Are, are people coming back to the office? Um, and so what we saw a lot of our clients, because they already had all of the data inside of Navigator or even our new clients we were pursuing, they had all of this data. They weren't really sure how to weaponize it again to use it for decision making. And so we, we were able to very quickly add new productization into Navigator uh, and new insights that were focused around uh, uh, rent abatement and collections and aged receivables by day and helping our clients really understand who's paying rent, who's in the office, um, who's falling behind, who's giving back space. Um, so ultimately, you know, still the, the power of data was there. It was intrinsic into the uh, portfolio, but they never used it in a way that helped them have in, insights into where do we mitigate risk? Um, and that's ultimately where we saw a huge shift. And, and especially during COVID, um, you know, uh, finance FP&A teams couldn't just walk down the hall to portfolio management or debt or asset management. They were disparate. They were spread out. Um, and so needing a centralized platform where they could uh, integrate and, and even on Zoom, uh, have have a collaborative conversations about, OK, where are we going? Uh, what, porf- what portfolio assets are performing well? What aren't? What do we do? Um, how do we provide rent relief to our, our customers or blend and extend them to give, give them some relief and keep them in the building? Um, and so ultimately, 
we saw our clients really shift to a very data-driven approach versus before it's kind of it's kind of easy to throw at a dartboard when it's a huge bullseye. That bullseye got really, really small during COVID and they had to use data and trajectory and trigonometry to get to, to successful wins. Right, but one of the things that we um, are at pains to point out here is that the quality of the insights coming out is massively dependent on the quality of information going in. So how does your technology work, um, given that it has to do so much more than uh, it, it has to do so much more than deliver um, insights? It really yeah. is about a culture change that is still only happening now. Yeah, certainly. I think uh, what it comes down to, too, is oftentimes, uh, you know, uh, our clients and even even clients we're starting to work with uh, took a you know a data warehousing approach. They needed to get all their data in one place, um, but ironically enough building a data warehouse for the operational team, uh, meaning the portfolio managers, the actual market officers, um, that is foreign language to them. That doesn't mean anything to them. So adding the layer that Navigator does very, even in the data governance process and the lead up to um, kind of production environment is super important because they're able to see all of the holes in their data day one versus six months down the line or 18 months down the line. We give them kind of this day one atmosphere of them being able to say, oh, we're missing buildings, we're missing leases, we're missing general ledger statements and credits and charges. And so uh, bringing in data visualization early on in the experience alongside a data warehousing project or a data governance project uh, actually gives the operators who are not technologists and not data uh, scientists the ability to see things in layman's terms, very understandable. We call them kind of data meatballs, very easy to eat, very simply seasoned. They can see, okay, I know that that's not right, or I know this is right. And it allows them to take action so that as they're running towards a deployment of a software solution, they know that when they hit day one, when they're utilizing this tool, that it's been breathed into by the business, not just the data and IT team. So they are ultimately getting a platform you can utilize day one to make decisions and, and make them with confidence. The only thing I would add there, just to give you an example in practice, right? Since you're in Ireland, right? Extremely popular trend lately for technology companies and some pharmaceutical companies to uh, do business, right? In in Ireland, and they've taken down office space, right? To, to house some employees there. Well, finding the space is its own set of data. Uh, if you own the building, you need to be tracking what's vacant, what's being toured face to face, what's being toured online virtually. Uh, if the person touring the space is a tenant within your portfolio in other places, what they're paying, what industry they come from, and what's the address, average industry rent for those leases, um, what type of capital project work might need to happen to the suite before it's ready for the tenant to move in, and then what type of credit history they have overall. All of that information typically was stored in a bunch of different places. And so leasing wasn't talking to accounting, wasn't talking to acquisitions, wasn't talking to construction and development. Now, all of a sudden, those people all have the same set of information. So you can now more easily get approvals for remodeling. You can have a more educated discussion for lease renewals and negotiations and a more positive tenant experiential relationship. That's the power of this centralizing and visualizing of data. Uh, and a central platform makes absolute sense, but the reality is PropTech has been um, on the rise over the past five or six years. So I would imagine that you're not coming into portfolios that don't have any technology. You're coming into ones that will have invested in bits and pieces. So how do you work with those, whether to integrate 
uh, to integrate other solutions um, or actually do, do you essentially just come in and that, that technology spend has to be re-spent effectively? Yeah, the whole purpose of our platform, we, we call ourselves Switzerland, right? Because we will literally integrate, ingest, audit, and work with anyone and anything. And the only reason we can do that is because we do not anonymize, share, or sell any data. Client's data is their own data. The dashboards are their own dashboards. The functionality is their own functionality. That's how we can work with all these companies. So we then begin integrating information from all these platforms that already exist, right? That's accounting systems, leasing systems, CRMs, Excel spreadsheets, uh, third-party public data sources. And the power of that is it becomes less of a, of a SaaS model, even though that's how we price. It's more of a consultative model. So we're bringing real estate subject matter expertise to work with the business. The business says, here's what we want to see. And then we work backwards. Okay, what data is going to make that possible? Now let's bring an IT and work with them. When we hear consultative, I always think it's kind of the opposite of scalable. So uh, how, how does that how does that tally? Or is this kind of the, the initial onboarding? Yeah, it's the initial. But, but most importantly, everything that exists inside of our platform exists because our clients recommended it. So we're basically crowdsourcing the best information, ideas, and use cases from all of our clients. Uh, obviously, you've seen them on our website, right? Blackstone, Starwood Capital, Newmark, Brandywine, et cetera. They bring a lot of interesting ideas because they're living this day-to-day -day on the ground. And what that ends up building is a standard toolkit that we start with, with each net new client. So that, that speeds deployment, it, spe it speeds, I'll call it uh, action to insights. Uh, we trademarked the term return on speed, actually trademarked it because we think speed to knowledge is, is the real power here. Okay. Um, speed is never something I associate with the real estate industry. I mean, I'm <laughs> to start getting a, a data-driven approach, <laughs> actionable insights. Speed almost seems like a step too far at this stage. But um, talk to me about the uh, evolution of the company and the expansion. So you've recently expanded into the UK market. Um, given your US base, was the US or was the UK the next logical step, or what's the strategy behind that? Yeah, we, we, yeah, we, we, a lot of our clients that are headquartered in the U.S. Uh, have thought it's time for us to expand organically. And so they have assets in, in these markets and regions. And we thought it best to, to grow alongside them and with them. We also, you know, like the fact that um, there's very limited, if any, language barrier moving into the U.K. and, and Western Europe. And um, time zone coverage is, is also fairly easy right now. In fact, we just opened up our London office and hired our first UK employee uh, under its own um, entity. And I think we're, we're just excited because even though people like to say that real estate is provincial, I really do think that there's a lot of trends in the UK and greater uh, Europe where they're ahead of the US in, in the way they think about the way inter, you know, people interact with real estate. Yeah, you know, it's amazing. Real estate may be provincial, but money isn't. Um, the money is definitely global at the moment. So in terms of your plans, I mean, look, congratulations on opening the London office. That's fantastic. It's another port of call now on my next trip to London. I look forward to visiting. But what are, the, what are the expansion plans into, say, other European markets? Is the EU an important destination for you? 
I think it will be. Uh, I think ultimately, you know, in, in our growth plan in the U.S., you know, as Kevin mentioned, a lot of our clients are global. Uh, they are not just in the U.S. They have global portfolios and portfolio companies. And so we get really get drawn into other regions. And so uh, while the U.S. was, you know, domestically our focus, we have offices in Seattle, Los Angeles, Dallas, and now London, um, you know, progressing further across, uh, you know, uh, the UK and ultimately Europe are definitely uh, on our on our site plans as well as into APAC. Uh, so we you know we have opportunities already starting to blossom um, in, in Singapore and Tokyo and China um, for large real estate companies as well. Um, but I think as, as Kevin mentioned, you know, moving into the UK was a nice uh, good step for us to jump across the pond. Uh, we already have uh, you know through through our relationships with some of our clients uh, thousands of buildings that we have on our platform in Western Europe as well as companies on the occupier side across Scandinavia um, and and uh, Western Europe already using Navigator. Uh, so it, for us, it's a it was a natural progression, and, and ultimately we we like to be uh, using our own uh, Navigator term. We like to be led by our customers. Yeah, no, and, uh, and actually that, that's ideal. I mean, one of the things we've seen across our PropTech startups in Ireland is that most of them um, who actually started in Ireland exported, uh, initially started exporting alongside one of their customers. So when they expanded into new markets, it was a, it was generally with a client in mind. And um, it, it's a good, safe way to get local market knowledge, regional knowledge and expertise you know, it's kind of a safe, it's a safe way to enter a new market. Um, in terms of innovation, Taylor, I'm very aware that you came into studying real estate with a technologist um, approach, which is, is very unusual. Um, fast forward now, you know, 12, 13 years, how are you finding the approach to the approach, not just to innovation? Um, you know, I, I like to try separate technology from innovation because actually I, I do think that this is an industry that has always been quite good at innovation, particularly if we look at the construction side. But I think maybe it's not seen because um, it, innovation was really the differentiator between the best in class and the rest. So it was never something that was never collaborative culture it, it, that was the competitive advantage whereas technology is different it's making innovation a bit more ubiquitous which is great um but how are you finding the more traditional players particularly the larger ones where when you talk about digitizing their portfolio it's a huge ask you know how are you finding the attitudes towards innovation shifting I think ultimately, uh, it, it's it's that enlightenment that data is is currency, and, and that it is something to be powerful. And I think um, ultimately, our, our design and approach was to bring a platform to the market uh, globally um, that is designed for that enlightenment. And I would say over the last ten years, um, in, to actually call it fifteen years, uh, the innovation in technology has been very ad hoc. It's been company to company building their own in-house solutions for their own competitive advantage uh, that they thought was going to. To drive the market, and really, it didn't. Uh, a lot of a lot of large firms call themselves technology first. Um, they're not really technology first because they're building in a vacuum. They're building in a cul-de-sac. Uh, they're not. They're not built building for innovation and scale. Um, and our approach is is essentially an all all tides rise uh, approach. Uh, you know, every boat gets to, to rise with us. So bringing in best practices across an industry. That's where true. Uh, industry-wide innovation happens where everyone gets better as a whole versus one group getting better in a vacuum and using that as a competitive advantage to actually suppress others 
um, and growing. And I think that that's something that we saw again in, in health tech and insure tech and fintech over the last 15 years is they all started to collaborate and integrate and cross over and integrate platforms together. Even simple tools like Clover and Stripe integrating into their banking softwares and Zelle, you're starting to see, you know, all of these ad hoc bespoke solutions becoming platforms. And, um, and then you get not just the businesses, but also the consumers are able to benefit and, and utilize data and utilize intelligence and utilize transactional efficiencies um, that we're really trying to do that as well. Yeah, I, I like to reference best in class. I mean, benchmarking is something that the real estate sector is comfortable with. Um, but at the moment, there isn't a good benchmarking system other than capital in and mm -hmm. capital out. So yeah. in terms of, you know, comparison with some of the jurisdictions that you're looking at, where does the UK sit? I won't ask you about Ireland. I know you're not operating here yet. <laughs> but in terms of the UK, where does the industry sit in terms of adoption and use of data? I think, uh, yeah, Go ahead. I was going to say, to me, it's about codifying it with titles. So just a few years ago, the title chief innovation officer at companies was very new. Now it's standard. Every large enterprise has hired a, a, a two CIOs, right? Head of innovation and head of information. Sometimes that's the same role. Sometimes it's separate. What's even newer is the idea of a chief data officer, CDO. And that, that the largest companies are just starting to do that. Once that happens, once you have that role, that title, budget comes with it. And then a team comes with it. And then there's this just understanding that the momentum is not to be stopped and they're and starting to spend. And I've found that many uh, large companies in the UK, both that own real estate and that even just occupy real estate are filling these roles. And that's a really, really good sign. Yeah. yeah okay, final, final notes for people listening in <laughs> who want to explore Navigator a little bit more. What, what's the most important thing they need to take away? Uh, I think that it's, it's that data is empowering and, and giving yourself a utility, uh, to really understand it and, and absorb it and utilize it in your day-to-day -day business. Um, you should be able to drive revenue, drive portfolio performance, drive occupancy. Our engine is designed, designed to make you money and, and ultimately make, make your team more efficient. Um, and, and that's really where the return on speed comes into play is how fast can we get you from that zero to one? Um, how fast can we grow grow your business? I, I particularly like your use of the term enlightenment because it does feel like we're coming into an age of enlightenment um, across the built environment. And that's exciting to watch. Thank Sorry. you, Taylor and Kevin, for taking us through Navigator CRE offering. Um, it, it's great to hear about and we'll explore more and we look forward to your expansion outside of the UK. So that's it from us this week. Thank you for listening in to Property Matters on Dublin South FM. You can get in touch with the show on social media at iProperty Radio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Also, my thanks to Peter Rice on Sound. We're back at the same time next week. For myself, Carol Tallon, all the team here, stay safe.